So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. You'll, you'll, um, because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me, and then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat that nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It will live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it, it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong, and they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, children. Usually, Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him, but this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done? God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule, they had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him, and now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would, would be always running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts, their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. There is no, this is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day, he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, 
God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll rid, I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. It's so good. From the NIV, here's God's promise that comes in his curse to the snake. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 2,000 years ago, a new teacher took the world by storm. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Okay, in Greek, the Christ. In the Old Testament, the future Messiah was often depicted using warrior imagery. And yet the core of Jesus' teaching consisted of sayings like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Those who live by the sword, what? Jesus did not embody what anybody expected. And yet he was a warrior, just as the Old Testament prophecies predicted he would be. But the way that he defeated the enemy, which in Jesus' mind was not like the Roman Empire, or nor was it the Pharisees on the right or the Sadducees on the left. For Jesus, the real enemy was not any human being of any kind, but lies that we believe and that we live into that wreak havoc on God's world. And so he defeated the axis of evil, not with a sword or a spear or with an army at his back, but through his own death on a cross. So it comes as no surprise that he calls his apprentices, okay, those learning from him a new, better way to be human, it comes as no surprise that he calls his apprentices to follow his example. So let's look at his teaching in Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 21. It says, from, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, to his apprentices, that he, he must go. And notice that phrase, must. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And this is, this is like the gut reaction inside of all of us to the idea of having to walk through suffering. Right to the idea of the cross. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me who? Okay, now, now that's, that's at the top of the list. You do not want to hear the things you don't want to hear Jesus say to you, right? But also, this is insight into the origin, like the true source of the lie that Peter is believing and speaking in this moment. It says, you are a stumbling block, to me. You're in my way. You're a temptation. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, my apprentice, my follower, my student, must, and there's that word again, must, whoever wants to be my apprentice must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
So at the center of the way of Jesus is this symbol of the cross, right? A symbol that has taken on very different meaning in our world than in his. Like we've turned it into an architectural feature on a building. We've turned it into a, like an emotional-filled song, or we've, we've even turned it into jewelry. And none of that is bad, right? It has become for us a symbol of love and grace and beauty and life. But in our culture, it's really easy to miss what the cross originally symbolized. I mean, to many of us, it just feels peaceful, serene, beautiful, tranquil, nice. But the cross is an ancient, brutal, grotesque symbol of suffering and death. The call of Jesus to deny ourselves and take up our cross is essentially a call to come and die. Now, in the world that we live, like in the greater Seattle woke culture, that just sounds crazy. Sounds crazy. And the barrage of cultural messaging coming at us says the exact opposite. Everything is about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. Like in 2002, um, BBC, any of you guys watch BBC stuff? It's so good. So good, bloke. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm into the British and the Australian, both. I'm tempted to just invite you up and have you talk to people because it's so lovely. Man. Okay, so I have digressed. 2002, BBC did a documentary on the last 100 years in, like, uh, America and Western culture, Europe, uh, on the rise of the advertising industry and consumerism, and they titled it, here's what they titled it, Century of Self. And I can't think of a more fitting title for the last 100 years. Like, you guys, like, the closest thing to self-denial that we, that we value and honor in our, in our culture is, like, health and fitness. Where, like, you deny yourself that burrito or the cheesecake, or you deny yourself sleeping in, and you get out of bed, and you get your butt in the gym. And, and okay, so the most extreme example I know of this is, is CrossFit. Do we have any CrossFitters in here? Oh my gosh. See, you can follow Jesus and be in a cult at the same time. <laughs> God bless you. Yes, it is. You're not even denying it. Okay, but in, but in health and fitness, like, it, it's still, still it's a mechanism for further self-fulfillment, right? You, to, it, the goal is to look good and feel good, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Or maybe you think in our culture of something else that we kind of, we elevate and we celebrate is careerism. Careerism is where you, you sacrifice, right, to put yourself through, like, grad school, and then you work crazy hours for a decade as a med student or a lawyer or whatever it is. But still, it's all to arrive at the end goal of higher income or the corner office or prestige or power or whatever it is. So overall, most of us just can't fathom, and this, this has become the American way. We just can't fathom a vision of the good life that doesn't involve getting what we want. And we see this clearly like in the modern sexual ethic of our cultural moment, right? This absolutely anything goes mentality. The, the thinking has become to deny yourself sexually in any way is not only unhealthy, but, but probably it's harmful. So the assumption, and I, it's interesting, the assumptions behind that, that, that lie behind that thinking go something like this. Okay, number one, nobody or nothing should be allowed to stand in the way of me getting what I want. Number two, 
if they or it does, it's a form of oppression. And number three, if I can't get what I want, I can't be happy. Now, according to the teaching in the life of Jesus, all three of those assumptions are deeply flawed, and yet our culture has universally embraced them as like unquestionable truth. And it's not just in the realm of sexuality, right? I mean, the, the, the vision of the good life for the masses in, in many, think about the vision of the good life for the masses in, in all kinds of different realms. I mean, think about the, the slogans of our age that people say and believe and live into. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. The heart wants what it wants. You do you, boo. Right? Now, to be fair, some of this is, I think, a natural response to extreme, extreme conservative Christianity like fundamentalism. Because in the church, many have recognized that desire is, is like the engine of our life. And when it gets revved up to full throttle, it can go haywire. And so in the world, if people, people tend to deify desire and make it a god, in the church, people have made like the opposite mistake. The church has demonized desire as evil or shameful or whatever. And sometimes in the church setting, it's like, it's like every desire is guilty until proven innocent. Uh, even though many of our desires are good, right? They're, they're God-given. It turns out that Jesus is not opposed to human desire. And we're going to dive more into that in a minute. Jesus was no fundamentalist. And yet, Jesus doesn't minimize what it takes to apprentice under him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, how in the world has Christianity become a global religion? A global following? Because that sounds horrible. Like, if, it, if this is the deal... How in the world did, did first hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then millions and then this thing spread everywhere? I mean, that sounds like a tough sell, don't you think? Why, why would anyone sign up for that? What's, where's the upside? Well, Jesus was a brilliant teacher, and he anticipates those kinds of questions ahead of time. And in the very next verse, he lays out why we should, why we should consider this. Verse 25, 4 so the re this is the reason why, or here's why it's worth it to deny yourself and take up your cross. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, the key word in Jesus' explanation is the word will. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Here's something fascinating about the teaching style of Jesus. It's it's surprising how often his teachings don't include any commands. Like sometimes they do, and you can find examples of that. But most of his teachings, they're not really commands. They're just statements about reality. So they're just a proclamation of, about how life actually works. Like he says, it's, it's better to give than, right? The last will be, and the first will be, those who live by the sword. Are those commands? They're not. They're just statements about reality. They, they, Jesus is saying, this is how life actually works. Like, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, that's not a command. It's just a statement about reality. So according to Jesus, you can either lose your life or you can find it. That is a statement about reality. For Jesus, there are two options. Option number one is deny Jesus and follow yourself. Option number two is deny yourself and follow Jesus. 
And Jesus says the results are either losing your life or finding your life. To Jesus, it's, it's an either-or deal with huge ramifications, okay? Because option A is we deny Jesus and follow ourselves. Or another way to say this is we put desire on the throne of our life, we worship it, and we sacrifice for it, and then we end up losing our life. Then you go, well, what, what does that mean? In what ways do we lose our life? What does that mean? Well, it means several things. I mean, for one, following self leads to chronic dissatisfaction. In other words, the, the more we only care about self and self-fulfillment, the more elusive true fulfillment and happiness become. I mean, okay, think of spoiled children who only want what they want. You got one in your mind? Think of, think of spoiled children as a general category. None of Tony's kids. Thank you, yeah. Spoiled children, question, are they happy? Do they bring happiness to the world? Not at all. <laughs> right? And if you try to manufacture happiness for them by giving them more, if you try to engineer joy by giving them everything they want, do they end up grateful and content and pleasant and kind? No. Heck no. What happens is they only expect and want more and more and more, and they cry more and more and more when they don't get it. They're miserable little people. They make everybody miserable. And here's why, and we all know this. This is the law of the human condition. The more I get, the more I want. So let's, let's run like through the, the trinity that our culture worships. Uh, money, sex, and power. Three treasures, video games. Oh, <laughs> I was like, what kind of video games are you playing? No. <laughs> okay, money, sex, and power. Uh, the three treasures that many people in our, in our culture are just like on a relentless search for. Start with money. How much is enough? Uh, many of you have heard the, the famous quote by Rockefeller, the oil tycoon, the richest man in the world at the time, right? He was asked by a journalist like, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money will, how much money will, will be enough for you? And he famously answered, just a little bit more. Now, many of us think, yeah, well, I'm not like Rockefeller. I really do only need a little bit more. <laughs> and so once I get that, I'm going to be set and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be content. Just a little bit more. And we're pretty sure that's true of us. We're pretty sure. But if we make money ultimate, if we worship it, we never have enough. As a God, it will always leave us wanting. Um, and with sex, I mean, this is just as true. What happens when people worship it? What happens when people decide that it's like the answer? What happens when people make it the main pursuit of their life? You see, you see like boundless just wreckage from that all over our world. Or you think about the worship of power, right? The ability to control or shape the world and our life to fit our desires, right? That's what power is. And the lie is this. If you can manage your circumstances enough, you'll be happy. But people who rely on power end up empty, and they usually end up lonely, and they become very controlling. You guys, the lie goes all the way back to the beginning. Happiness will happen for me when I get that thing that I want that's over there. That's not reality. It's not truth. And Jesus knew it. And he's inviting us to find freedom from the lie. 
John Ortberg wrote a little story about the reality of the universe. And uh, I've shared this before. Many of you have heard this, but I love it, and I'm in charge, so I get to do it if I want to. Because you should deny yourself, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay, here it goes. He writes, There once was a young girl whose parents took her to the Shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named a Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy is a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of the package to be raised beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that she would not just be buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. So she explained, I want that Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before. And if I get it, I'll never ask for anything again, ever. No more complaining. No more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of, of my life. So he writes, that seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it. And it worked. And she grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse, and he abandoned her with three small children and no money. The kids, too, were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources, and eventually left without a trace. When she was an old woman, Social Security gave out, and she had to live from hand to mouth. But she never complained. She had gotten that Happy Meal. She would think to herself often, I remember that Happy Meal, she'd say. What great joy I found there. Just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction. She was grateful for the rest of her life. And he goes on, he says, does life ever work this way? You would think that after a while, children would catch on, that they would say, you know, a happy meal never brings lasting happiness. I'm not going to get suckered into it this time, but it doesn't happen. When the excitement wears off, they need a new fix, another happy meal. They keep buying them, and they keep not working. In fact, the only one Happy Meals bring happiness to is McDonald's. You ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that grin all the time? Billions of Happy Meals sold. <laughs> of course, only a child would be so naive. Only a child could be foolish enough to believe that a change in circumstance could bring lasting contentment. Or maybe not. Maybe when you get older, you don't necessarily get any smarter your Happy Meals just get more expensive. Now, we, we talk about this a lot, right, when it comes to, we, with, to money and stuff, material possessions, clothes, cars, houses, vacations. But really, it's any change in circumstances. It's the, it's the if-only lie that we believe. If only my health was better. If only my marriage was better. If only my spouse was better. If only I could get a new career and a, and a promotion. If only I could live somewhere other than here. If only I could get what I want, then I would be happy. And we fixate on whatever that is, and we make it the God that we worship, and we put that desire on the throne. Okay, on the flip side, if you deny yourself and follow Jesus, something happens. Ironically, and many of you know this from your own experience over the years. 
when you no longer need to get what you want to be happy, then all that's good in your life, already good in your life, and most of us have tons and tons that is good in our life, yes? If we're willing to step back and look, then all that's good becomes to us a gift. It's no longer a right, it's just a gift. And amazingly, when you no longer see what you want out there as a right, and instead you see what you already have in your life as a gift, your capacity to enjoy life and be happy skyrockets. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is trying to free us from the self-made prison that we so easily live in called dissatisfaction. Because the reality of life, here's the reality of life that Jesus understood. As, as long as we attempt to gain peace through rearranging our circumstances, we will always end up frustrated. Why? Because you will never be able to arrange all of your circumstances just right. Never. There's always going to be something that you cannot manage or control. And if you can't be happy without getting what you want, you will never, ever, ever be happy. And it's, it's not just getting the good things that, that we want. It's also thinking happiness resides in somehow getting rid of all the bad things, right? We all have trouble. We've all got problems. So if happiness is dependent upon a trouble-free life, here's a newsflash. It will always elude you. Because as soon as you get one problem handled, another one pops up. We get one fixed and another one pops up. We get one fixed and another one popped up, pops up. It's just like a never-ending game of whack-a-mole, baby. And so if life needs to be trouble-free for you to be happy, the best that you can really ever hope for in this life is fleeting moments of happiness in between problems. I'm just here to encourage you all this morning. So you can deny Jesus and follow yourself, or you can deny yourself and follow Jesus. The stakes are life and death. In what way? Well, for one, following self leads to chronic dissatisfaction. But also, when we choose to follow self, we become enslaved by our desires. Now, having desires is not, is not bad. It's not wrong. It's not evil. And I want to be clear about something, because I think people get confused about this. Jesus did not teach the same thing as Buddha. The Buddhist view is that all desire is bad, and it leads to problems. And so the goal for the Buddhist is the cessation of all desire. It may take many lives and reincarnations to get there. But when a person ceases all desire, they reach what? Nirvana. Which, what is that? Well, the way it gets explained is it's, it's where the flame goes when it's blown out. So for the Buddhist, all of life consists of suffering, and suffering is the result of having desires. And so for the Buddhist, the path to freedom from the endless cycle of suffering, the only way to be free is to cease all desire. And when you get there, then you go where the flame goes when it gets blown out. So the target on the wall for the Buddhist is to cease. It's to cease all desire and then cease altogether. And so let me, let me just say unequivocally, you guys, that is not the teaching of Jesus. While Jesus certainly encourages self-restraint, it's not the same thing at all. For Jesus, human beings are all a mixed bag of desires. Some good, some not so good. Not all desire is bad. So the goal is not to cease all desire. For Jesus, the goal is to become driven and motivated primarily by love. And how does Jesus, 
how does Jesus define love? Well, for Jesus, love is simply willing the good of another above my own. So for the apprentice of Jesus seeking to become like Jesus, the lifelong quest is to become the kind of person where our actions reflect love and are motivated by love as much as possible. For the apprentice of Jesus, the target on the wall is this, to become a recipient and conduit of the agape love of God. This is not the same thing as emptying ourselves of all desire. What it is, is a reordering of desire as we surrender it to Jesus. So Jesus does not want to rid you of all desire because desire is what makes you human. The right desires are actually the things that make our world beautiful. And the purest of all desires is love as long as it's defined as willing the good of another above my own. So Jesus calls us to die to anything that would get in the way of that. And what's at stake here really is, is freedom. The freedom to experience life as God intends. The freedom to receive love and give love and become love. Worship of, of self is an, it's an addiction that robs us of freedom. I'm like, this is how addictions work, right? They begin with a promise of pleasure or joy or satisfaction or fulfillment, some form of goodness, and what they end up doing is they imprison us. I mean, addictions whisper freedom, and it's a bait and, and switch. It's like the voice of the snake in the garden, and what they bring is ruin. And we have all seen, like, the drastic effects of substance abuse. Like, we've all, we've all known somebody who has become a slave, someone whose freedom was stolen and their joy was stolen. A few years ago, I, I was, uh, Jen and I were just watching, I saw like a really powerful anti-smoking commercial. And it makes a really simple point that certain decisions rob us of freedom. But I remember seeing the commercial and, and just kind of like going, wow, like that was, that was really intense. But it's, it's, a, it's a, an amazing communication of the whole bait and switch thing with addictions targeted at like 14, 15 year olds. So um, I'm just... Let's watch it. I, Amanda Green, at the point of my life when I'm not a kid anymore, now that I finally have freedom to define who I am, I hereby agree to be bound to you, to let you decide how I spend my money, to let you set my boundaries, and to come running the instant you snap your fingers. With this contract, I relinquish part of my freedom to you. There's a contract in every cigarette. When you light up, you sign up. Don't let tobacco control you. Hope you're watching that, Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, God bless you, 17 years old. <laughs> so, okay, so in this ad, uh, what's on trial really is the, the very nature of freedom. So, I mean, let's go back to the scene in the garden. The voice of the snake says, Right now, your experience, okay, your life is incomplete. Look, this tree has the most delicious fruit. Yes, there are lots of other trees, but this one is forbidden, forbidden because it's the best. God knows if you eat from it, you will discover fulfillment beyond your wildest dreams. So don't deny yourself. Indulge. Enjoy. Don't let God or anyone else restrict your experience, restrict your freedom. You need to be your own boss. You need to be your own God. You need to make your own decisions. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. It's the way to the highest happiness. But it was a lie. Self-indulgence didn't bring freedom and fulfillment, just brokenness, heartache, and regret. 
And so Jesus is coming now. Jesus is coming and saying, if you deny yourself and follow me, I will never lead you astray. I'll help you, I'll help you come to see who God is, who you are, and what the good life really is. You, you can't trust the culture to define those things for you. You can't even trust your own inner desires all the time. They too will lead you astray. So follow me with open hands, with an open heart, and I'll show you beauty that you aren't able to see yet. Let me show you what life is all about. Let me show you what love is, how to receive it, how to extend it, how to become it. This is abundant life, and you will never find it apart from me. You have to let go of what you think you already know, and trust me. You can't cling to your vision of what leads to happiness and follow me at the same time. You have to let me show you a different way. You can do it your way, or you can let me show you my way, but you cannot do both. But there's a cost. Whoever clings to their own dreams, their own ways, their own goals, their own version of reality, they will lose their life. Whoever follows me and lets me redefine all of that, they will find life. They will find life to the full. So I just want to pause here and ask you to think about you for a minute. Is there something in your world these days that's holding you hostage? Like, is your vision of the good life making you a slave to something? Is there something out of reach that's keeping you from being happy? Because here's my question. What if you get it? What then? What if you don't? What then? And do you really want to give it that kind of power over you? And here's how you give it power. Keep making that thing ultimate. Keep sacrificing your character and your walk with Jesus for that thing. Keep chasing after it no matter what as you tell yourself, there's no way I could be happy unless I get this. Keep thinking that joy isn't possible for you without it. Keep focusing on what you don't have and ignoring all that you do have. Stay discontent and jealous and angry and bitter and manipulative and controlling. For Jesus, in any given moment, for any of us, there are two options. Deny Jesus and follow yourself, or deny, deny yourself and follow Jesus. The stakes are losing your life or finding your life. This is not a command. It's just a proclamation about reality. Um, just before World War II, a famous German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who ended up being just one of, the, one of the heroes of resisting the Nazi movement, and he died for it. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. Have any of you read that or heard of that? Yeah, it's still, it's still pretty widely read. Um, and the book was, warn it was kind of a warning against what he called cheap grace. And he argued that it's misleading to talk about God's grace being free. I mean, he affirmed that what Jesus did for us is a gift and we cannot earn God's love or forgiveness or um, favor or any of that. But he sternly warned, he was, the whole book, the whole point is he's sternly warning and saying, there is a cost to following Jesus. Like you will not be able to just do whatever you want anymore. You will need to let go of many things. You will need to be willing to leave them behind. There is a cost. And while that's true, that's definitely true, um, other great minds have tempered that thought a bit. 
thinkers like Dallas Willard have countered by pointing out, yes, the invitation to be a disciple of Jesus will cost you something, for sure. But there's also a cost to not following Jesus. Like, you, you just have to run a cost-benefit analysis. Will you trade lasting fulfillment for quick pleasure? I was talking to my son, uh, to Cameron, um, in Haiti. He lives in Haiti this week, um, and we talk every week. And um, so for the last few years, and I've talked about this quite a bit, but he, he reads the Bible, he reads Scripture on his own, and uh, reads several chapters, and then we talk about it. He picks out a few verses that hit him or that, that he thinks are particularly meaningful, and we, and we talk about those. And he's realized that he needs, so he needs both solitude and community as he pursues Jesus. Like, he's, he needs both. And so he also needs, like, the accountability uh, and the predictability and the rhythm and all that. Otherwise, what happens for him is good intentions fail to materialize into anything. That's just him. I know the rest of you, that's not a problem. So, th- so this, is, this is kind of a way for us to share Jesus together. And it's developed over the last couple of years, and you guys, super cool. So he reads a, a few chapters from the Bible every week, and then he shares with me a few parts of it that hit him in some way, and we, and we talk about those. And then what he does is he picks one of those, like the, the most impactful of those, and he, he soaps on it, okay? So he journals about it and, and, and then connects it to his everyday actual life. And then he reads the soap to me, his journal entry, and we talk about that. And you guys, it is like the coolest thing ever, really. Um, so right now, he's reading through Genesis. We have stayed, he's read through the New Testament twice. And he was finally like, Dad, I'm ready for the Old Testament. I'm like, I don't think you are. <laughs> he's like, no, I am. And I was like, okay, we'll go to Genesis. So right now, he's reading through that, which has been really interesting. Um, and this week, he soaped on the story of Jacob and Esau, um, where the story where Jacob steals Esau's future by taking advantage of him. And uh, m- so many of you know the story. Esau comes home from hunting, and he's so hungry, and he smells Jacob's stew, and he's like, oh, your stew sounds, looks, smells delicious, dude. I'm starving. And Jacob's like, oh, yeah? Doesn't quite go like that. That's my translation. But <laughs> he's really hungry. And, and so he trades his birthright, Esau does, of being the firstborn, which, if you know, was a really big deal in the ancient world, right? He trades his birthright to his, his little brother Jacob for a bowl of Jacob's stew. So Cam had I, what I thought was a really profound soap about his desire to not live that way, like short-sighted. And he was just pleading with God to help him become strong and wise enough to resist momentary desires that are in conflict with his longer-term, deeper desires. Only a fool would sell his birthright for a bowl of stew, right? But in the moment, it's really easy for any of us to play the fool, right? Jesus wants us to see the stew for what it is, so temporary, and life with God, both now and forevermore, as the ultimate treasure, the thing that we would actually sell everything to acquire. Why? Because there is a cost to not following Jesus. But Jesus also doesn't lower the bar. He never lowers the bar. He never pats us on the head or treats us like we can't handle it. He's very clear. There's only one way to life with God as God intends. The cross is the entry point to life in the kingdom. Anybody who wants to follow me, apprentice under me, anybody want to follow me, apprentice under me? 
fantastic. He's like, fantastic. Here's step one. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and go die. And for Jesus, it's, it's like really critical that we get this. Entrance into the life God wants for you is it's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your social status or your wealth or your IQ. It's not based on your religious background or your past or whatever mistakes you have or have not made. It's not even based on your current character. It's only based on a very, very simple question. Are you willing to come and die? You won't get very far with Jesus until you settle in your heart to take this step. And you guys, this is all over the teachings of Jesus. It's all over the New Testament. In, in Luke, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Meaning, this isn't something that we like do one time at conversion, like we go to a Christian camp and we pray a prayer and we did that. It's something that you do again and again and again daily. It becomes for us a way of life. I think of Paul's famous line from Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Jesus has been crucified, but so have I. I have been crucified with him. So we misunderstand if we think Jesus was crucified so that we don't have to be. He didn't die so that we don't have to die. He died to show us how to die in such a way that we too, like him, can come back from the grave. And Paul wants us to understand the cross isn't just something Jesus did for us. It's also something we do with him. So the cross isn't just the way to forgiveness of sins and grace. It is. It is the way to forgiveness and grace. It's central. But it's also a daily practice. It's not just an event from the past in the life of Jesus. Like, it is. It is a real event that happened in the real past in the life of the real Jesus. But it's also a way of life in the present for you and for me. The only way to life is through death. Um, there's this beautiful description of this in, in Romans. Again, it's Paul, and he writes this. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so the only way to new life, to the new life of Jesus, is, is death through death to self. We, we die with him so we can rise with him. And so to close today, I just, I want to invite the worship team to make their way up. But as they do, I, I invite the rest of you guys to just close your eyes, kind of bow your head for a moment. And I just want to invite you to, to visualize. Like in your mind's eye, picture Jesus on the cross. And then visualize yourself like on the cross with him or on a cross next to him. Or maybe take a desire that's fighting to be on the throne of your life right now. A desire that is asking you to worship it. A desire clamoring to become ultimate for you. Take that desire and visualize it on the cross with Jesus. And imagine saying to it, I'll, I'll die to that if I need to, Jesus. Here I am with open hands. Here I am with an open heart. But we can't, we can't stop with the cross because the story doesn't end there. 
So now visualize yourself walking out of the tomb with Jesus three days later. Visualize yourself walking out of darkness into the light, fully alive. Like visualize a beautiful, crisp, bright, sunny Palestinian day, and you are fully alive with the whole world in front of you. You're filled with the new life God wants to give you. This pattern of dying and rising is at the core of the way of Jesus. It's at the core of the universe. Jesus says, this is how the universe works. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This morning we get to participate in communion together. Um, here at Brookview, everyone that has said, I'm a follower of Jesus, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, I follow the way of Jesus, is it welcome to come. Um, there's no membership. There's no class that you need to take in order to do that. Um, we have places to kneel after you grab the elements or you can go back to your seat. Come whenever it is appropriate for you. Um, and Paul said in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, his letter to the church, and I'm reading from the message translation, let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. Having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt.